Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. You are more powerful than you think. Eric Liu. This is an age of bottom-up citizen power, and this is an age of a la carte politics, where especially younger people are saying, you know what, I don't like this duopoly. You know what, I don't like this forced menu. I'm going to take a little bit from here, a little bit from there. I'm going to build my own. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Richard, we live yes. <laughs> we live in turbulent times. We do. And in the last year, so many assumptions about politics have been turned upside down. So there's a lot going on. And yet many people feel powerless and utterly turned off by politics. Only 50% of young Americans under 30 voted in 2016. It seems like our trust in democratic institutions overall has declined. So today, manna from heaven, our guest, <laughs> Eric Liu, uh, says you're more powerful than you think, and that's the name of Eric's new book. A Citizen's Guide to Making Change Happen. Eric is the founder and CEO of Citizen University and leads the Aspen Institute's Citizen and American Identity Program. So you write that too many people are illiterate in power, illiterate about who has power, who doesn't have power, how power is exercised. Why is that so important? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be called manna from heaven before I even utter a word. That's, <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Heaven, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, when I talk about literacy and power, I mean it almost literally. Power is something that you can and must learn to read and can and must learn to write. To be able to read power means taking any situation. It can be uh, your neighborhood and your community. It can be national politics. It can be something going on in the economy and understanding what are the different conduits of power here, institutions, regulations, organizations, people, networks that are in play. What are the forms of power, whether it's money power or people power, ideas power that, that that's kind of coursing through those conduits? You've got to be able to read that. But once you learn how to read that, then you've got to put yourself in the situation of, well, what if I were to redesign that? What if I were to, were to rearrange that power structure. And that means you've got to learn to write power. And I think the reality of American life right now is that uh, so many people have neither the motivation nor the ability to read or write power. Uh, And so they lapse into this essentially house of cards, dark conspiratorial vision that all politics is like scandal. And, you know, out of that uh, are born people like Donald Trump as president. When you have a, you know, a, a vague cartoonish and dark vision of what politics is, 
rather than any sense that this is something I got to learn how to do. You talk about what you call creeping public fatalism in the book, but then you go on to say that your book is for, quote, underdogs and challengers. What I found really interesting is you find a lot of good examples really across the political spectrum. Yeah, and I think that's the real message here is that politics isn't just for the professionals. This is for you and me living in our neighborhoods, living in our communities and thinking, who decided that? (laughs) And then coming to realize, well, there's really not that high an obstacle between me and how that decision got made. And I'm going to figure out how I'm going to get my hands on that. And the sense that we're in an age right now where everyday people are finding they have so much more capacity to change so much of what people thought was possible in civic life. And there's there's just an awakening going on right now. What are some of your favorite examples of people who stepped up and discovered that they could employ power? Well, I open the book with the story of these tomato pickers from Immokalee, Florida, who were uh, migrant farm workers, mainly from South and Central America, and who for decades were picking tomatoes in this corner of uh, Florida, which is responsible for most of the tomatoes we eat in the United States. And they were laboring under conditions of essentially indentured servitude, somewhere between that and slavery, actually, Mm -hmm. right? So the farmers weren't paying them? Well, they were paying them pennies for the bucket. So not paying them an hourly wage, but paying them by volume and uh, punishing volumes and um, out of public view, uh, subject completely to the whims of their employers, the growers. Um, And it seemed for many, many years that they were just the living definition of powerlessness. But starting in the 90s, they started to organize. Um, And that emboldened them to boycott, to embolden them to start demanding better working conditions. It emboldened them after they got those to start speaking not only to the growers who are directly employing them, but to the buyers of the tomatoes, whether it's grocery stores or fast food chain, and saying to them, hey, are you aware that the the conditions under which you're buying this stuff are horrible? Uh, How about signing up to a code of conduct, right? And they began to change the whole ecosystem that springs from a simple, humble tomato, Are their conditions now appreciably better than when they first started organizing 20 years ago? And if so, in what ways? The Immokalee tomato pickers now work under appreciably better conditions in a number of ways. Among the changes that uh, the workers got for themselves were hourly wages. Their working conditions and the number of hours that are expected of them are, are better. They have voice and they have access now to other conduits of power, whether it's the media, whether it's clergy whether it's activists from outside Florida who are keeping an eye on their employers and on the whole chain of purchasing that, uh, that leads to the growing of tomatoes, uh, they're able to shine a spotlight um, on that whole power structure in a way that they were utterly incapable of doing uh, 20, 25 years ago. So growing out of that uh, success by the tomato pickers came the FAIR food program. What is that? Well, this is a program by which the uh, buyers of all these tomatoes, whether giant supermarket chains or giant fast food chains, agree to buy only from growers uh, where there are certified standards of uh, labor conditions and pay. And as a consumer, can I look for that? You can look for that, number one. But number two, to me, the the striking thing uh, about this as a story is how sophisticated this was, right? Again, these are literally, in many cases, illiterate workers, right? They, they, they don't know how to read the laws of the state of Florida or the Constitution of the United States, and they certainly aren't lawyers, but uh, they had a deep intuitive sophistication about where the pressure points were. And they understood that beyond getting their bosses to pay them more and, and put up tents for them to, uh, to, to get out of the heat, that the real culprit, in a sense, the real object to be moved here was the buyer's. And then they started thinking about, well, 
What can we do to shame, pressure, push, uh, nudge these buyers? And that's how the Fair Food Program grew. These workers built alliances with other activists, with lawyers, with people who could help them build this infrastructure. One thing I really like about that story is it's not just go to Washington and get a big new law passed. Putting pressure on some of the fast food outlets and having them change their practices. Look at little things or big things like McDonald's no longer buying chicken that's been raised with antibiotics. That's a really big deal. And that came about largely because of consumers organizing and making their their ideas known. And then when McDonald's does it, it, it influences the whole rest of, course, of, the, of the industry. Of course. You know, you, you pressure these market movers and you move the market. Uh, and I tell that story because almost everybody listening to this podcast has more at the starting gates, has more capacity and capital and power than the average tomato picker in Immokalee, Florida. Right. And if they could do it, if they could get organized and change policy, change their working conditions, change the ways in which they were treated with dignity and meaning, then you certainly can too. So, Eric, you say that power concentrates and it self-justifies. What do you mean by that and what do we do about it? Well, um, in, in this book, uh, I talk about three laws of power. So you name two of them. Number one, power concentrates. It compounds, right? It compounds into these winner-take-all monopoly kinds of situations, just like the board game Monopoly, right? Eventually, one guy has Park Place and all the hotels and everybody else is screwed, right? Or or Trump Tower. Or Trump Tower. (laughs) Choose your piece of real estate, right? Um, Law number two is that power justifies itself, right? It tells stories about why it should have power. And that story can take the form of ideology, propaganda, narrative, conventional wisdom, trickle-down economics, whatever the form it takes. Um, It's a just-so story about here's why I've got power and you don't, right? If the world stopped at just those two laws, we would be stuck in a doom loop. Mm -hmm. That doom loop is broken only by law number three, which is that power is infinite. And I really want you to sit with that. And that's the hardest one for that's people to grasp. That's the hardest one for people to, well, grasp maybe, but accept, mm-hmm. right? In, in civic life, you can generate power out of thin air simply by organizing. And in civics, it's a positive sum system, right? If you learn how to give a speech, if you learn how to organize people, if you learn how to pressure lawmakers, you don't diminish by one whit my ability to give a speech or organize neighbors, or pressure lawmakers. All you've done is added to the net amount of power that's coursing through this ecosystem. I don't pretend or even remotely assert that all people are equally powerful. We're not. But the fact that we are often stuck in these doom loops where power concentrates into monopolies, and those monopolies justify themselves, says that the only way we bust those monopolies is say, you know what, what if the three of us decided to challenge that monopoly? How are some ways that people give away their power? So in the first place, I describe power as a gift. And and that sort of is hard for some people to compute, right? But I really want you to accept this notion that you have power that you are continuously, often unwittingly, throwing away and giving away. And what it means to be an engaged citizen is to be mindful and not throwing it away, but choosing intentionally to circulate it, right? So one of the most concrete examples is the vote. When people say, oh, I'm not going to vote because the, the system's rigged or I hate my choices, um, what I say back is there's no such thing as not voting. Mm-hmm. Not voting is voting. It is voting to hand your power actively over to someone else whose interests are going to be harmful to your own. It is actively giving away your power to someone who wants to use it against you. And so why not choose, in fact, 
to do the affirmative act and claim your voice, not under any pretense that it's going to solve everything, but under the notion that it's part of your piece of responsibility. So make the case for going to the polling booth as opposed to sitting on your ass. The case for going to the polls and voting is really simple. Um, Only freeloaders don't show up. We are all responsible for the health of the body. We are all responsible for the health of the civic ecosystem. And what gets my goat more than anything else, whether it's people from the left or the right, are people who are essentially free riding on the participation of others, right? And so don't be a free rider. Show up. Do your piece. And uh, now, P.S., that doesn't mean that voting solves all problems. It doesn't mean that the choices before you on the ballot are satisfactory choices. It doesn't at all. If all politics were about voting, I would agree that that's a very limited, unsatisfying arena. But voting is the beginning, not the end, of your participation. And Eric, during your TED Talks, you discussed the idea of making civics sexy. What do you mean? (laughs) You know, I think to a lot of folks, civics, certainly, politics generally, feels like a a duty one must actually fulfill. feels like eat your vegetables. Um, That's certainly true for the younger generation. And instead of eat your vegetables, I want this stuff to be join the club, join the party, join the activity in a way that makes it feel joyful, participatory, fun, and purpose-driven, that it feeds some sense of this is what I'm about and I'm willing to do the slog of engaging in civic life and civic power, um, not because I love stuffing envelopes or knocking on doors, but because it feeds my sense of purpose and dignity to be part of something bigger than myself. What are some of the things that get people you know, out of their chairs and away from their TVs to go get involved in politics? So one of the core strategies that I talk about is, is changing the story, right? If power justifies itself and tells you a story of why you're screwed and why you should accept being screwed... Changing the story means that every one of us moves in this overlapping set of three stories, a story of self, a story of us, and a story of now, right? What moves people is when you can line up those three stories and say, your story of self is tied up with this bigger story of us. How do you want to define us? It could be us workers. It could be us people of this racial group. It could be us, people of this region. However you want to define us, you're creating a bigger us that that self is going to situate itself in. But then you couple it with the story of now and why this is the moment where we together have to act, right? Every political movement, every successful political campaign lines up and threads those three stories. Um, And that speaks to the yearning that all of us as humans have for purpose, for meaning. We want to be the hero of our own story. We, we don't want to be the, the, the guy wandering and meandering uh, aimlessly. We want to feel like this journey has a destination and I'm driving, right? And so if someone offers me a chance to be part of that kind of story, I'm going to sign on. And proof positive of that is Donald Trump. He offered that story to lots of people and lots of people bought it. Yeah, as did Obama. As did Obama eight yeah. years earlier. Eric Liu is our guest, author of You're More Powerful Than You Think. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Richard Davies. I want to put on my skeptic's hat before you do, Jim. Okay. Because <laughs> Jim's usually the resident. Here comes All Occupy right. Wall okay, Street. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Occupy Wall Street. Um, yeah. Big deal, huge yeah. coverage, yeah. didn't get what they wanted. Um, did they achieve much? So Occupy Wall Street didn't, quote unquote, succeed in that they didn't, as a movement, get policy change and get credited as a movement. But Occupy Wall Street succeeded in a different sense. They begat $15 now. They begat- This is a, the minimum wage. This is the minimum wage fight that started in my neck of the woods in SeaTac, Washington, and then Seattle, Washington, and then spread- uh, in a very contagious way to other cities around the United States uh, where people said, you know what, it is just not okay uh, to pay people less than $15 an hour and expect them to live in modern American cities uh, today. But uh, even beyond that, Occupy Wall Street fed um, the language and the framing around the 1% and the 99%, the language and framing of a rigged game that Bernie Sanders uh, grabbed onto when he ran his campaign. Um, and you can say, well, Bernie Sanders didn't win. And my answer would be he didn't win the presidency, but he sure has changed American politics. And, and out of the fallen log of the Sanders campaign now are going to sprout a whole bunch of other activist uh, endeavors. And there's so, no doubt on the right that, yeah. the, that the Tea Party also had a huge impact on the Republican Party. Well, look, I, I, I see Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party as very connected things. Mm -hmm. um, their policy preferences maybe couldn't be farther apart. Um, the people and the types of people in those two movements could be very different. But fundamentally, both of them are examples of what I call this great push back. And, and they were both seeing. suspicious of the concentrated power. They're suspicious of, of monopoly, Washington. concentrated mm -hmm. power, rigged games, people mm -hmm. telling you how it's going to be, mm -hmm. um, establishment figures, right? right. Um, and institutions, cronyism, right? Uh, the, the, the way that the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street both hate crony capitalism right. is to me a signal of the times that we're in right and, now. And they're both right. You wrote in Atlantic recently, there are two ways to look at the effect of Donald Trump's presidency on American democracy. One is that he's a menace to the republic, that his attacks on journalists, federal judges, and constitutional norms undermine the rule of law. But the other is that Donald Trump is the greatest thing to happen to America's civic and political ecosystem in decades. Are, are both true? Both are true. They, they, those are not mutually exclusive. Uh, it, it is precisely because of the menace that uh, this president and some of his top staff pose to democratic norms and institutions that lots and lots of Americans, not just on the left, all across the spectrum, are sitting up, getting up, waking up, uh, and showing up. When you get sick, the immune system responds, right? Thank God right now the immune system is responding. People are swarming like antibodies the way they swarm to the airports, the way they swarm to train stations after the executive order on immigration refugees was issued. Um, and people are swarming to marches and they're swarming to organizations and, and clubs in a way that uh, 
wasn't the case 12, well, the, 15 months uh, ago. Uh, uh, the conservative blogger Glenn Reynolds, who a law professor who we've had on the show, he likes to say that the great thing about having a republic in the White House is also that the press – starts taking notice of things like executive overreach <laughs> and domestic spying yeah. and issues like that that don't seem to hold as much fascination for them when there's a Democrat in the White House. Uh, you know, that's a very fair criticism. I've said, you know, uh, just personally, um, I-, I was not sufficiently troubled by the prior president's use of executive authority when it served progressive ends or ends that I favored, Right. Um, and, uh, and what can I do right now? I can, I can, in the first place, confess that and say, you know what? You have a point there. I should have been saying more back then, right? That may be cold comfort to folks on the right, uh, but it is certainly better than my saying, de- than my denying it, right? Um, the point now isn't so much, a, you know, uh, well, do two wrongs make a right or who was wrong first or whatever. The point is, now shall we agree that executive overreach is a troubling thing? And what shall we do to curb such overreach? Eric, we're a solution show, so I want to drill down on some solutions. First, though, do you think there's too much focus on what the federal government is doing and not enough on your local town and city? Your second part of your question answers the first part, actually. Um, Yes, I do think we focus too much on national federal politics, uh, and that's the most dysfunctional part of our political system. Uh, If you're interested in solutions, go local. If you're interested in civic innovation, go local, right? There is all kinds of renewal and creativity happening on the ground in red communities, blue communities, purple communities. In the state of Missouri, there's an organization called uh, Communities Creating Opportunity, uh, which is a network of faith leaders from across race and party lines. And they've been working over the last few months on a campaign they call the Moral Economy Campaign. And that's pushing back against these payday lenders in Missouri and Kansas that have been able not only to rig the game of predatory lending to the poor, but have been able to do so with the aid and abetment of their legislatures, right? And and these are sometimes lenders that charge 1,500%. The legal limit for a payday loan in the state of Missouri is 1,950%. 1,950%. I mean, at that point, why set a limit, right? Why not call the limit infinity? Uh, (laughs) Because once you start taking out a $500 payday loan that compounds and compounds into a five-figure debt, Um, It may as well be a 500-figure debt. Well, CCO has been leading this campaign from the ground up with clergy, with activists, with neighbors, with people who believe, whether from a social justice left point of view or from a religious right point of view, that this is just unjust. Have they succeeded yet? No, not yet. But to me, they are recognizing that whatever Congress is or isn't going to do, they have an opportunity to go local and fix this thing at the level of Kansas City, fix this thing at the level of the Missouri legislature. For the second time on the show, we're going to mention Matt Kibbe. (laughs) Matt Kibbe of the Tea Party, I think the Tea Party Patriots, came up in a conversation we had with Joan Blades of Living Room Conversations. She of the left, he of the right, and they got together and, and talked about important matters and actually found some common ground. What did you learn from the Tea Party and from Matt Kibbe? So Matt is, um, he was one of the early Tea Party leaders. He led uh, the organization Freedom Works. Uh, And I've learned a ton from working with Matt. Um, On many political issues, take healthcare, we have very different divergent policy preferences. But prior to that, we have a fundamental shared view that this is an age of bottom-up citizen power, and this is an age of a la carte politics where especially younger people are saying, you know what? I don't like this duopoly. You know what? I don't like this forced menu. 
Um, I'm going to take a little bit from here, a little bit from there. I'm going to build my own, right? And we both recognize that in a time like this, it's really important to democratize understanding of how you get stuff done from the ground up. And so we have worked together in telling stories of everyday citizen activists, some from the left, some from the right. Could be a woman in Utah who's trying to lead a, the legalization of uh, medical marijuana. It, it could be someone who is a, a West Virginia Tea Party activist who decided that it wasn't enough just simply to rehearse National Tea Party talking points, but that he had to actually show up as a candidate for office in his little town and he ran for city council and mayor. But people deciding that they're going to take personal responsibility for collective outcomes. Right? So, what, so what are some good ways people can do this? Well, the first advice I always give is my Ben Franklin advice, which is join a club, start a club. Ben Franklin is the iconic American because he was an addicted, habitual, relentless serial club maker, mm-hmm. right? right. Uh, couldn't help himself, right? Uh, um, stamp collecting clubs, formed the first post office, formed the first public library, formed fire the first department. fire department, right? Yeah. Um, philosophical clubs, discussion groups, what have you, right? Now, my advice to you today is start a club or join a club, and it doesn't even have to be a political club. It can be about your neighborhood It can be about sports. It can be a a book club, right? But the act of inviting several other people into a common endeavor, planning for that common endeavor, and then trying to come to a common outcome, that's all good we muscle building, as we were talking about earlier, right? That gets you out of the me mindset. Um, And that work of club making and club building um, is the building block of civic life, I think. Eric Liu, author of You're More Powerful Than You Think, Thanks for joining us. It's been great to be with you guys. Thank you for having me. You know, at the end of these shows, every time I'm like, but wait, what, Richard? There's so many more things I want to talk about. (laughs) No, really, uh, Eric, a wonderful book. And and I I mentioned this before we started, but but I I have to really salute an author who includes in his reading list at the back of the book both the left-wing radical agitator Saul Alinsky and the right-wing free market visionary F.A. Hayek. (laughs) Well, you know, they both had the same point of view on one level. Uh, which is that when you get out of the way of bottom-up self-organizing power, interesting things happen, and that when you try to stifle that, terrible things happen. Eric Liu, you're more powerful than you think. And Jim, you and I are more powerful than we think because we get to have a conversation after this. I love this description that we should develop the we muscle, that that's atrophied at the expense of the me muscle. Yeah, you know, he's, he's on a theme there that Charles Murray and many others, even on the right, have, have talked about, which is the decline of civic institutions, of places where people who don't even always necessarily agree get together and get to know each other. It's such an important thing. I love this idea. Just go out and join a club. Yeah, the the go out and join a club is terrific. And then something that we didn't really get into very much, uh, civics education, where he right. says that, you know, it right now it's the eat your vegetables course in I actually, schools. And yeah. I think that there are so many creative ways that that could be taught. I, I actually disagree with that. Uh, I think what's happened to civic education isn't that it's that it's just boring or has faded away. It's that it gradually turned into know your oppressor education. You know, it became the critique of Western institutions and values 
rather than the uh, the, the, the building blocks for, the, for, for for taking right. Action so it was sort of positive. you know I think in a lot even down to the grade school level the kind of Howard Zinn view of history has sadly um, taken over education. It doesn't mean we shouldn't know about the oppression of the Indians and, a lot, and slavery and bad things that happened. But I think that for a lot of kids today, they don't know how a bill becomes a law, but they know all about the, the, the moral failings of the founding fathers. Well, I think something else that's overemphasized in our education system, perhaps, but certainly in, in our media, is the power of the federal government has become a, such a big deal. And we should be looking, at least at the beginning, when we're organizing, that local club should be local. And, and the example of the of the tomato pickers is so great because a lot of what they accomplished didn't even require the government. The government was just one part of that picture. I think those groups that that organize for things like fair trade and and uh, and environmental standards and can do it outside of government regulation. It's so important. It's often underemphasized. Doesn't mean there's not also an important role for state, local, federal government and, and for business as well. Right. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And the show is produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Go to DaviesContent.com if you're interested in making a podcast. Our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Thanks. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. For joining us.